0: Good, uh, good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from Ephesians 5:21 and 6, 1 through 4. It's also printed on page 8 of your bulletin. If you can turn there with me, I'll read that for us. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Metro. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's, uh, I'm excited to be here with you. Um, for the past year, it's pretty crazy to think, we've been going through the book of Ephesians all the way from the first week of this year. And um, last, last week, we just ended a 7 Sermon series on marriage, and I have the wonderful priv- privilege or burden to uh, preach this one sermon on parenting that we have all year. So, hopefully, it's able to do some kind of justice to the text today. Um, I want to give a disclaimer before I start. In no way am I an expert in this. I don't have the greatest credentials. I am not the best father. I am not the best son. I am not the best husband. Ask my wife. Don't ask her. Um, But I thank God for His Word and His authority to teach us and shape us to be better children, parents, and spouses. So the main focus of our our, uh, sermon is parenting, but our passage actually provides some guidance for all of us who are children and even those who are happily or unhappily married or single, not married, we're all happily married, Single and ready to mingle. So I have three points for us today. The first point is command. Second is calling. And the third is power. Or in other words, first, what are we commanded to do? The second, why are we called to do it? And third, how are we able to do it? Command, calling, and power. So the first point, command as children and parents. What we're commanded to do. And Paul begins this passage with a command to children. And as we remember the passage on marriage directly before this, there's a major difference between the command Paul gives to husbands and wives to submit to one another versus the command Paul gives to children to obey. It's a completely different kind of relationship. During childhood, kids are unable to read. They're unable to process for themselves God's Word. So parents are essentially... They represent God to children. Mom and dad are given the responsibility to mediate both God's authority and His love to these little ones. They're entrusted with a God-given authority to protect, to love, to guide, and to discipline the children. In contrast, um, nowhere in the Bible are husbands and wives uh, called to demand obedience and discipline from one another as they would kids. Although us husbands sometimes need that discipline, but God calls parents to discipline their children. Submission, however, as we went through, is a very different. is very different from obedience. In our last sermon series, we talked about how submission is a voluntary self-giving to a lover. Where both spouse, where both spouses have the responsibility to provide and to receive constructive care. It's love's response to love. It's a symphony where a melody and a harmony come together and create something absolutely beautiful. But the relationship between mom and dad and and the kids is, in a sense, one way. It wouldn't be the smartest thing for parents to receive instruction and discipline from our children. That'd be weird. That wouldn't really make any sense. There's a Netflix documentary called I Am a Killer, Uh, which goes into the background and life of death row inmates, um, convicted of capital murder, which gives first-hand accounts on how they ended up where they were. And there's one common theme among all of them. And that theme was that they grew up in broken families with abusive parents, no parents, or parents that flat out walked away from them. And in no way am I saying that all the children coming from this kind of background will end up on death row. I think some of us here, that's a testament to God's grace. But my point is that children desperately are in need of direction because children are unable to provide that direction for themselves. And this world is a dark and broken place. So by God's grace, they are placed under the care of parents to be lovingly guided and to obey and from our passage today, Paul provides us two reasons why we should obey as children. And the two reasons, it's because it's part of the natural order and it's part of the revealed order. So the first, the natural order. And what I mean by natural order is the idea uh, of obeying parents. It's naturally in all of us. It's naturally in human beings. It's part of our DNA. Paul here in our passage says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord for it." is right, and this literally means it is righteous, meaning it's part of the natural law which God has written on our hearts. It's how we were created, and this value isn't just confined to Christian ethics. It's actually embedded in all different cultures, all around the world, in different eras. You know, many of us see that firsthand in, our, in, in the cultures that we grew up in, in the Asian cultures, African, European, all different kinds of religions as well have some form of this. Confucianism, it's very big on parental respect. Again, all civilizations recognize parental authority as absolutely indispensable to a stable society. And it makes sense that in our passage, by and large, parental obedience leads to human flourishing. We have moralists, Greeks, Romans, and even Stoic philosophers. They said that the obedience of a son was required by logic and reason and was part of the natural order. So again, one reason for obedience is that it's part of our natural order, as we see in our passage. And the second is the revealed order. And by revealed, we see, that, um, we see that this command for obedience is directly revealed by God himself through his law. Verse 2 and 3 in our passage, how honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. This little excerpt comes from Deuteronomy 5, which contains the Ten Commandments delivered by God to His people. And honor your father and mother is actually the fifth commandment out of the ten. If you dig a little deeper, we see that these ten commandments are actually split into two parts. Five regarding our relationship with God and five regarding our relationship with our neighbors. The first five, our relationship with God. Do not have any other gods before me. I'm kind of paraphrasing. Do not make an idol of God. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Honor your father and mother. That's the first five. The second five, relationship with our neighbors. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. And listening from this, you would think that honor your father and mother would be part of the second five regarding our relationship with our neighbors, but it's actually part of the first. And the question is why? As I said before, during childhood, parents represent God to their children, or in other words, obeying and honoring parents is the way children honor and obey God. In fact, it's so important that during the days of Israel, God commanded that any rebellious and stubborn child unwilling to obey to their parents would literally be stoned to death. And obviously it's a little different now where we'd have stones just flying everywhere left and right, but the focus is that God holds this command extremely high. In our current time and age, generally this is still something that God requires of children. There are exceptions, of course, uh, but even in those exceptions, we are called to honor our parents. Just one example um, would be that there are many young children, young people who were brought up in non-Christian homes where parents would forbid their child to worship and follow Christ. And in that case, we cannot obey this. It goes directly against what we were created to do. And this is just one of many different kind of examples and scenarios, but in this case, we are still called to honor our father and mother, be respectful, to love them. But again, there's a point in our lives where we become adults. We're no longer children, but become adults, and it'd be almost foolish to obey every single thing that our parents tell us to do. But again, the Lord calls us to honor our parents. One example of that is from the past uh, marriage sermons. When we get married, what are we called to do? We're called to leave our parents and cleave to our spouses, which becomes the primary relationship in our lives. If spouses start to obey every single thing that the parents tell them, you're going to have some problems, some big problems. So here, Paul commands children to obey and honor their parents. Then we move on. Uh, our passage then speaks to parents. Verse 4, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And here it's important to note that unlike the call to children, which is a, very, which is a positive command, obey your parents, Paul starts this command to parents with a negative one. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And this is important because as power-hungry individuals, human beings, we we are very power-hungry. We're far more likely to exercise our power over children than exercise restraint. And that's Paul's point. Parents can often parenting can be often more about restraining our, our authority and our power than it is exercising it. And here, Paul isn't just speaking to fathers, but he's speaking to mothers as well. It's, a, it's similar to the use of brothers in other passages, with, which uh, often but not always refers to both brothers and sisters. However, we can't completely discount that there's an emphasis on fathers here, and here's why. Uh, the picture Paul gives of a father in this passage is in very, it's in stark contrast to the norm of his day. In Roman times, At the head of the Roman family was a father who exercised sovereign authority over his family. He had an iron fist. He had absolute power. He had power to punish. He even had power to kill. Families were often treated as slaves or objects at his disposal. And one commentator says a Roman family had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He can make them work in his fields. He could take the law into his own hands and punish however he wants. He can even inflict the death penalty on his child. Paul's description of a father in this passage also is in complete contrast to uh, the current modern caricature of the father. The modern father, as you see in TV shows and movies, is a spaced out, useless, completely disconnected, lazy, brain-dead man. An example of that, Peter Griffin. He's pretty brain dead. Or Ray Romano in Everyone Loves Raymond. Or on the other end, uh, a father who's never at home, obsessed with his work, cheating on his wife, forgetting he even has kids and absolutely dreads coming home. An example of that, Don Draper from Mad Men. And in contrast to both of these, Paul's understanding of a Christian father is reflective of our Heavenly Father. Paul describes a parent who does not intentionally anger, abuse, control for personal gain, or feed their own ego, but thoughtfully and lovingly guides, instructs, cares, and disciplines. We should all strive to be children and parents like this. And right now at this point, I think an eighth of you are parents, <laughs> and you're probably thinking those of you who aren't How does this message apply to me at all? But I want to encourage you that the Apostle Paul also did not have any physical children, but he had many children in a different sense. He had many spiritual sons he cared for and disciplined and loved as if they were his own. He also implores us here to seek out spiritual fathers, mothers, sons, and daughters whom we walk with We care for, we discipline if needed, and we love always. And all these things I'm going to talk about, all these things that I'm going to talk about also apply to this relationship as well. That leads us to my second point, calling as parents. Why are we called to follow Paul's words? And the why is actually the crux of this passage. And it comes from the two phrases, in the Lord and of the Lord. Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Or verse 4, fathers, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And as children, we fail to understand that our parents have been given to us by God. Obey your parents in the Lord again. As father and mother, as mom and dad, these children have been placed in our care They're not ours. That might be hard to fathom, but they don't belong to us. And here we are reminded that they belong to the one who created them. Paul instructs parents not to bring them up in the instruction of Justin Park, but to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And there's a clear pattern in our passage. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, Bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here, in both areas, parents are mediators between children and the Lord. Tim Keller, he says, The essence of parenting is to be a teacher, raising them to eventually be independent and become their own adult. We are not owners, but we are stewards. We are caretakers ambassadors of these children that have been entrusted to us to mold and shape them into God's image. And all these aspects also don't just apply to parenting, but it applies to all relationships. 1 First, First Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. As parents, this idea is completely radical because we think we own them that they belong to us. Or as individuals, we believe that all that we have is ours, that they belong to us. But Paul reminds us that everything, whether it's material objects that we own, the gifts, or the uh, talents that we have, or even our children, they belong to God. And they have been given to us to honor Him and glorify Him. Going back to parents, there is a profound difference between Parenting as owners and parenting as ambassadors. As owners, whether we're conscious of this or not, we think, what can I get out of my kids? How can I feel fulfilled? How can I make my life worthwhile? Here are some symptoms of ownership parents, ownership parenting, excuse me. Being upset or embarrassed when they don't conform to our image. And this is especially hard for me because. Uh, oftentimes we go to Agnes's cousin's house and they have two little girls. So you can imagine they have girl stuff everywhere and I have two little boys. And I'm, I love sports. I love guy things. And I want my boys to love guy things, but often we go to their house and we're having a good time and I look around like, where, where the heck is Owen? So we look for him and he's upstairs playing with a bright pink kitchen and a bright pink shopping cart. And he's shopping and he's cutting vegetables. He's making ice cream and giving it to his cousin. Don't get me wrong, it's the cutest thing in the world. But for me, this is especially hard because I want them to be manly. I want them to love sports. I still hope that they do love sports. The second fear, often we, another symptom is fear of parents or people judging us based on our children's behavior. Or tied to this is the inability to find identity apart from our children. So when we don't receive love and and respect from them, we get upset and we become emotionally crushed. We also fear that they'll turn out a certain way or we're going to be overly focused on our idea of success for them. That is why, as parents, we want our kids to participate in every activity out there. We want them to be well-rounded kids. We want them to play basketball like LeBron James. We want them to kick a soccer ball like Cristiano Ronaldo. We want them to play cello like Yo-Yo Ma. We want them to sing like Beyonce. We want them to dance, probably not like Beyonce, um, but we want them to dance well. We want them to be perfectly socially adjusted. We want their academic path set on a top five university with a full ride so we don't have to pay for them. Think about the pressure of these children of our generation. And whose idea of success is this? Is this our idea of success? Because it surely isn't God's idea of success. We instruct them in what we think would be successful, would make them successful, but also more likely what would make us successful. But in contrast, as ambassador parents, our attitude becomes, how can I serve my kids? How can I make them more into the likeness of our Heavenly Father? How can I mold and shape them to fall in love with Jesus, to be loving and kind and sacrificial like Him? But our challenge as parents is that even if we strove to be ambassador parents, how can we shape our children in the image of God if we ourselves fail to look to God? How can we mature them in training and instruction of the Lord when we are unable to be mature ourselves? Children truly learn when parents teach something that they're passionate about, something that they truly believe in. So Paul's call here just doesn't apply to us teaching our children but it also applies to us teaching ourselves. Paul tells us that earthly fathers and mothers are called to point their children to the true Father in heaven. So what does it look like? What, what does this actually look like to be gospel parents? You know, and as parents, it's, it's inevitable that there's going to be times where we're just annoyed and frustrated. We're going to be annoyed when we have to call our kids their names five times before they even acknowledge us every single time we want their attention. Or anytime we take our kids to the playground or to Target, we know that there's going to be a battle to bring them out because they just don't want to leave. Or when siblings are always fighting, screaming, and yelling when all we want is five small minutes of peace and quiet. You know, sometimes they're also moments of fear saying i'm doing absolutely all that i can to raise these kids but what am i doing wrong why are they behaving this way why are they thinking this way well then there are also times where they're sleeping next to you and they and you can't help but gaze at them in love and wonder it's pretty confusing i got to say and it's so easy to lose our way. So what's the foundation of gospel parenting? What is it that we need to teach our children? Brothers and sisters, it is the grace of God that we must teach and preach our children through our actions and words. Again, this isn't just for parents, but it's for people of all stages of life. The grace of God. The basis of parenting must be grace and not law. And it's so much easier to bring the hammer down crashing upon our kids, but Paul Tripp, a Christian counselor, he reminds us that as parents, when we become impatient and we yell at them, we're asking the law to do what only grace can accomplish. We hope for change in this way, but we get upset when things don't change. And don't get me wrong, setting rules and expectations, and laws, those are good, but they have no power to bring change into our children's lives. It is only God's grace that has the power to affect change. And again, this process of change isn't just for children, but it's for all people. If you look back uh, onto your life, it's not those moments where rules and laws are placed in front of you. They're stacked high where change happens in your life. But it's when you experience the love and the grace of another through action and words that is when your heart begins to melt grace based parenting does not lessen sin in fact grace or in fact grace takes wrongs extremely seriously but the distinction is that grace takes a vastly different approach to wrongs to tantrums to spills, to whining, to disobedience. When we yell and demand obedience at our kids, rarely do they ever say, well, thank you, Mother. I appreciated that. I will keep that in my mind, and I will remember that for the next time, and I won't do that again. No, that never happens. Rather, as parents, our job is to make the invisible patience of God visible to our kids. Paul Tripp reminds us that change is almost never an event, but it's a process. Hashtag trust the process. It takes extreme patience. We have to be willing and committed to have the same conversation again and again with our kids, talk about the same issues again and again without getting mad. And even when our kid asks for eggs and we make them eggs, but afterwards they don't want eggs but want cereal. We have to be willing to commit to have the same conversation again and again with our kids, to talk about the same issues again and again. We've got to be committed to the process. You know, but the crazy thing about this process is that it also provides parents with many opportunities not to only shape the child, but it's God's way of showing parents the same grace in uncovering our own sins and our own idolatries. It uncovers our fears, our pride, our bad tempers, our impatience, our crankiness, our inability to listen, our disobedience, our self-worth, and our selfishness, just like we see in our children. Isn't that funny how God works? So then, how is this possible? How is it possible to become like the parents that Paul is describing here? How do completely impatient, easily angered, frustrated people do this? And the answer is that we can't. We don't naturally have the ability to do this. And often we act like the very children that we're disciplining. And we're disciplining them out of frustration, out of anger. So how then, how then can we become like these parents? And that brings us to our last point, the power to become biblical parents. How are we able to give up our children to the Lord? How are we able to obey and honor our parents? How are we able to be stewards of our children along with all the things that, we, that God has blessed us with? Uh, one of the hardest things that me and Agnes have ever done as parents was to sleep train. And after this, you're going to probably think that we're horrible parents, but here goes. I promise there's a point to this. You know, there are many methods of sleep training a baby But after we tried a bunch, the one that we followed was the cry-it-out method. Boo! Yeah, no, we're bad parents. (laughs) The reason why we chose to sleep train at all was because when we tried to sleep with Owen in our bed, he wouldn't fall asleep until 10 or 11 at night, but still wake up at 6 a.m. in the morning. He'd be groggy and cranky all day. He'd be upset. He'd be crying. He'd be inconsolable. So obviously from the name, the cry it out method, you take your child into the bedroom, you pray for them, you kiss them good night, and you leave them in the crib to cry it out until they're able to fall asleep on their own. But at, the age of, uh, but at this age, Owen was about 10 months at the time. After the parents leave, turn off the lights, close the door, and walk out, the child thinks that mommy and daddy are gone forever and that they're never coming back. From the moment we drop off Owen in the crib, you can see the look of panic and fear in his eyes because he knew exactly what was going to happen. And even though we were right there, he would begin to cry and reach out to us. The first night after we turned off the lights and walked out of the room, we waited in agony for him to stop crying and calling out to someone to hold him. And we thought that he'd get tired of standing there holding on to the railing for dear life, but he refused to let go and stood crying while he looked towards the door. And even as his eyes became heavy, he began to drift off. He fought sleep. He He didn't want to go down. And he still held on, hoping and crying that mommy or daddy or anyone would come and hold him and comfort him. If he could speak, he would have probably cried out, why have you left me? You guys are bad parents. Why have you left me? Where are you? And well, you're, you're probably asking, why would any parent do this to their child? And we do this for the good of the child. We do it in, for a future hope that the child can learn to sleep on their own and get a full night's rest for the next day and wake up happy as a clam but it was hard. It was, it was heartbreaking. And as a father, I wanted to swing open the doors. I wanted to reach out my arms and hold him and wipe away his tears. And there were nights where we just, we couldn't take it, so we did just that. We went in, we held him. We still have weak hearts now, so um, we let him sleep with us now. And uh, every night we regret it because he takes around 80% of the bed. Middle of the night, he's kicking. Sometimes he's singing. I'm I'm not lying to you. Three in the morning, he wakes up and starts singing, screaming, crying. But we absolutely love him so much. You know, I think God created sleep training so that we can understand a little bit more of his love for us the Gospel tells us that God the Father placed His only Son into this world, both of them knowing exactly what was going to happen. But rather than a look of panic and fear when He was left in this dark world, Christ humbly did all that was asked of Him to do. And eventually, He quietly made up, made His way up the path towards a hilltop where He would be killed. Jesus Christ The father's only son did not ascend to the hill, kicking and screaming, looking to the door for salvation, but rather he was nailed to the cross with absolutely nowhere to go. The son cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Father, where are you? With no answer. And the doors of heaven, which was once His place of refuge, were shut to Him. Why would the Father ever do this to His own Son? But unlike our reasoning for sleep training, this was not for His child's own good. Rather, it was for the good of those who nailed His Son to that very cross. Jesus lived in complete obedience to the Father, even at the cost of Himself. And even when His Father's will was not for His good, Christ perfectly honored His Father when He said, Not My will, but Your will be done. And through His great sacrifice, His suffering and death, the Father did not lose His only Son, but rather He gained millions. Now we we here have been adopted into his family and can call him Abba Father. For those of us who haven't uh, had a father present in their lives due to various circumstances, through Christ, now you have the greatest father who will move mountains and seas for you. For those of us who have had the privilege of the presence of great fathers in our lives, Jesus Christ calls our earthly fathers evil in comparison to our heavenly Father. And if we know that our Father is perfect and has our best interest in mind, how can we not trust and obey and honor Him and even surrender our children to Him who can take care of our children far better than we ever could? So the question is how? How do we become children and parents like the ones Paul describes? We look to the ultimate sacrifice and of the giving of His Son to us by our great Heavenly Father and the ultimate act of obedience and trust and honor by the perfect Son, Jesus Christ. We must dig into the treasure chest of Christ's patience and love and grace for us and extend these things to our children, to our parents, to our friends and to our coworkers. You know as parents, it's easy to go through the day close-fisted, ready to just blow up at the next thing our kids do, but I pray that we would go into the day with open hands, completely unexpecting what's to come, but seeing these moments no longer as hassles but rather as opportunities for us to make the invisible love, grace, and patience of God real and active in them and to shape them to be more and more into the image of God, their great Father. So regardless of if you have children or a mother or a father, I pray that all of us would seek out spiritual fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, and pour out the grace and love both of the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. Praise God, the Father. Praise God, the Son, who is our Savior and who is our King. Let's pray.